Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 144th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Tom Bradley. Tom is the former president of TD Ameritrade Institutional, one of the leading RIA custodial platforms serving nearly 7,000 independent RIAs with almost $600 billion of assets held in custody. What's unique about Tom, though, is that he led the original Waterhouse Advisor Services platform when it was first started back in 1992 and has been a part of the growth and evolution of financial advisors operating as independent RAs on a custodial platform for more than 25 years. In this episode, we talk in depth about the evolution of the RA custody model itself, from the early days when advisors had no direct means to actually trade across multiple client accounts and and had to manually enter transactions off paper trade confirmations into their portfolio performance reporting systems, to the development of the first wave of RA custodial tech integrations when few advisors had more than $20 million of AUM and couldn't demand much of their providers, to TD Ameritrade's unique pivot into an open architecture system with its VO Open Access platform because their acquisition by Ameritrade in 2006 gave them a unique opportunity to leverage the first wave of APIs that other RA custodians hadn't fully developed yet. We also talk about the nature of the RA custodial business itself, the not always apparent ways that RA custodians generate their revenue from advisors and their clients, why the RA custodial options for how cash is invested has become such a hot-button issue, what it really costs an RA custodian to service an advisor on average, and what clients actually pay as a percentage of their assets, and what it would take to develop an RA custodial platform that itself operated on a truly fee-only basis. And be certain to listen to the end, where Tom shares his perspective on the future of the RA custodial business, the gaps he still sees in how advisory firms manage succession plans and the transition of clients after a founder passes away, And why, in the end, the fact that RA custodians may also compete with their RAs for end investors in their retail brokerage businesses can still be a net benefit to most advisors because it brings down the cost of the custodial platform in the first place. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Tom Bradley. Welcome, Tom Bradley, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Nice to be here. I'm I'm really excited for the discussion today to to talk about just the, the whole world of RIA custody and, and what it means for these these platforms that we as advisors, at least on the RIA side, like b- build our whole businesses on, build our own foundations on, to the point that I, you know, like I I hate to to acknowledge it, but that I feel like we kind of take for granted. Like I don't know if very many people ever call their custodian, like, hey. That non-ACAT transfer only took 10 days instead of two weeks. That was totally awesome. But goodness knows we are on the phones ranting as soon as anything goes wrong. So it's it's kind of a, I feel like it must be a thankless business sometimes. And you have lived it from pretty much the start. I know you, you were involved with TD Ameritrade's advisor services division when it was first getting started in the early 90s, which I think was before it was TD Ameritrade, and even before it was TD Waterhouse, I think it was just Waterhouse then, and and have really seen the evolution of just 
the whole RA custody model and what it means and what it does and, and the advisor world that that's built on top of it for you know the better part of 25 years now. And and so I'm really just excited to talk about like the the whole evolution of the RA custody model and how we we got to this strange point that we're at today. Yeah. Well, Michael, I, I'm thrilled that you want to talk about it because it's really, when you think about the custodians, I, 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 you're not wrong on that. I think advisors do appreciate the custodians, but you know, maybe they're not ones to give too many pats on the backs, but the custodians know that, they understand that. And they, for the most part, at least when, when I was there in the seat, I, I really didn't care about that. What I cared about was that we were providing great service to advisors and that advisors were doing business with us because they wanted to do business with us. And I think when you go back, yes, to the early 90s, I got we kicked it off in about 91. At some point in 91, they pulled me in in 92. And it was it was just... We saw that there were a bunch of individuals that had power of attorney, trading authority on accounts, and they didn't seem to be related to the accounts. And and then we saw that one of our competitors w- w- was was observing the same thing. It was actually in the business and it put together a business in, in a more formal way. And so we decided to put a team together to see what we could do for these individuals because we saw they had unique needs. And so where the business has come from, from the early 90s to today, is just it's just unbelievable. And not just the, the custodians, but the custodians have enabled really the independent RIA model to flourish. And to see where that has grown from well under a trillion dollars in the early 90s to, depending on what study you look at, let's call it $4 trillion today. I mean, it's just been remarkable growth. Yeah, I'm... I'm fascinated by how this evolved and and I think I want to start there by just understanding like what what was going on in the early 90s when when this model was coming forth. So as you said like there were some clients, I guess I was going to say retail clients, but there was no retail versus RA clients, just clients were clients. Like there were there were retail clients, there were direct investors who had powers of attorney documents on file with I was going to say TD, but I guess with Waterhouse that said, hey, this other person is allowed to, you know, is authorized to do things in my account. But the POA wasn't because, you know, a daughter was helping out or, or, or dad was helping out or a brother was helping out. It was this unrelated third party. Oh, it looks like it's an advisor who has a power of attorney to trade in a retail client's account in a world where everybody else was a broker and a broker dealer. So this whole idea of like, there's a third party that's authorized to do things in your investment account was a very alien concept at the time. Right. Very alien. I mean, we, we investment advisors ex- existed, but they, for the most part, we thought about, when we thought about an investment advisor, you thought about someone that was managing a mutual fund. And so these, these folks were a whole different animal. And and they started to either start businesses on their own or break away from other firms, and they wanted to do things differently. And they wanted to charge based on a fee, and they wanted to to provide advice that was unconflicted to their to their clients. They didn't want to sell them something, or other than sell them good, solid advice for a fee. And so we would get phone calls from these folks, and. They'd say, listen, I need to buy a particular security and I need to do it in 50 accounts at once. And so we developed, uh, we had to come up with block trading. 
And of course, back then it was all on, on paper. We had tickets and we would, uh, the advisor would place the order with us. And then by the end of the day, they would call us up and, and, and rattle off the account numbers and the shares that were to go into each account. <laughs> I love that. Just it's, it's a phone call explained to a person like this many shares in this account, this many shares in this account. I guess like phone calls and you know follow up facts for confirmation or something. That's what it was. And then we had people that would sit there and just key punch it into a system to our to our back office system. It was it was very antiquated. And even the area that we were in it was kind of funny because before they pulled me over to the the uh, advisor the advisor uh, custody business, I was running uh, customer service for the company. It was on the same floor. We were at forty four Wall Street, and that was on the same floor and. They said, all right, Tom, we're going to pull you off this and we're going to put you in with this new unit. And there were actually a couple of units attached to it, unrelated to the RIA business, uh, custody business. But we're going to pull you into this unit. And it was kind of in the corner of a floor beyond the air conditioning vents, you know, with a fan blowing, blowing, you know. So you're just looking at this like, man, like, what did I do well, to I'm get a demotion? Like I got demoted already? <laughs> they put me in the corner. I said, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I tell you, I look back on that moment and I quickly realized, wow, this really has potential. This is a really interesting business and it has potential. And it didn't take me too long to get uh, to get over the fact that we were stuffed in a corner. It didn't take me too long to get super excited about the business. Yeah, it's just, again, that this level of infrastructure that we have today that I, I feel like we sort of take for granted because it's just been so natural for so long is it's fascinating to me when you dial the clock back to what it was like then. You know, RIAs were primarily essentially institutional investment managers. Like, you know, the the technical structure of how an asset manager got paid to manage a mutual fund was like the mutual fund was the chassis and it would hire an, an RIA that might even be an internal or affiliated party to manage the mutual fund on a pooled basis. And so a, like there were virtually no RIAs to individuals aside from maybe huge family offices. And and virtually all other RIAs either manage one client with a giant pile of money or they manage a whole bunch of clients on a pooled basis. So the whole phenomenon of like, I'm going to have 50 clients that have 50 accounts or 100 or 150 accounts because they got multiple accounts per household. Like, so you got to create block trades and allocate them like that just didn't exist until RA showed up and say, hey, we need this thing because we're managing a bunch of clients at once. And and that stuff all had to get built in the 90s. That's right. That's right. It did. And you know, when you look back on it, it was it was just like the classic startup, the classic entrepreneurial startup where we were going along and we were go- going 100 miles an hour because the business was just started to grow so quickly. And you know, we when you look back on it, we thought we knew what we were doing, but we didn't really know exactly what we were doing. We were kind of making things up on the fly. I mean, we didn't even have an agreement with the advisor at the time. The only agreement we had was really from the client that said, this person has authority to trade on my account. And we said, well, okay, the client wants this person to trade on their account. That's their prerogative. So we'll take limited powers of attorney. And, and that's what we did. But over time, as the business started to grow, we realized how, how critical and how important technology was and uh, what technology could bring to the table. And the first real technology thing that came to this industry, it was an electronic interface between 
the brokerage firm and the and the portfolio management system, the advents and the centerpieces of the world. That really was was a critical period of time when when the custodians developed that those downloads. So that before advisors, we were keep punching trades in, and advisors were doing the same thing. Advisors would get executions. In fact, they get stacks of confirmations from from the, the brokerage firms, and then they would sit there and keep punch all that information into their portfolio management system. Yeah, I you know even when I started twenty years ago. One of the jobs I had, I guess, like my second firm. So this was probably 2001. You know, we were on one of the well, one of the competitors to that, which is a, a company called TechFi that ultimately got got bought, I think, by Advent. One of my jobs was to take all the trade confirm, like the paper trade confirms that came in, and track and reconcile them against the the data that we had in in TechFi to make sure the performance reports were right. Like it was all manual with paper. <laughs> to 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 do that and track that that data and information so I guess that's part of just the I don't know the the fortuitousness or or I guess in practice kind of the enablement of the rise of the internet itself that just suddenly you could use this internet infrastructure thing that was coming into existence to say hey what if we just use the World Wide Web to send you a data file instead of sending you a stack of paper to manually key? Right, right, and and so it's also it's enabled. I mean, it's technology period, and that that in the early days in the nineties enabled advisory firms to grow and achieve greater scale. When when I mean, a large advisor back then was in fact the way the first interface that we had was to Advent, and the only way that I was able to convince our founders, who I was reporting directly to at the time, Larry Waterhouse and Ed Nickel, to develop this Advent interface and to spend the, the money on uh, on the development, was to get a big advisor to agree to come over to us. And then this this huge fish that we had was the largest advisor that we would have at the time. A sixty million dollar advisor. Now, sixty million dollars is a lot of money, but in today's world, that's not necessarily considered a large advisor. But I, but I was able to get this advisor to agree to come over on the condition that we built an advent interface, and that's how I got the company to, to, to invest. Because again, you go back and look at, like industry benchmarking studies back then. Because this was, this was just the time that Mark Tabergine at Moss Adams, you know, started with this crazy idea of, hey, these RAs seem to be emerging and growing. What if we did like a practice management benchmarking study and started tracking them? So he he started doing that in the in the, I think, mid to late 90s. And and I, I mean I've seen some of the early studies back then. It's like the average RAA had, you know, $17.2 million of AUM and an assistant. And that was the business. And I mean that was a typical firm. And Granted, there's still a lot out there today at that size, but now we have hundred million dollar firms, billion dollar firms, and ten million dollar firms. You know, it's it's amazing how much the space has moved. That you know, like the sixty million dollar advisor was like the mega whale you needed to push through the advent integration the first time. That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, the way we really thought about growing the business back then, because most advisors seem to be around the same size, was we just thought about adding more advisors. In fact, in 1996, we decided that we needed to make a splash. We had achieved about a billion dollars in assets under management from advisors, a billion dollars. It was a lot of money 
Well, it's still a lot of it's still a lot of money, a lot of money back then. But today, it's it's nothing compared to what the custodians uh, control today, and the advisors on the custodians control. But we said, you know, we need to make a splash, and we need to show that we can really grow this business. So let's try and double the business in a year. So and and the way that we did that, the, the key to the strategy was to focus on adding more advisors. And we did that. We took it from 1 billion to 2 billion. In 1997, we had a huge party on Windows of the World at the top of the World Trade Center to celebrate that incredible achievement of, of doubling the business in one year. But it was all because we were able to add more advisors. So where where were they coming from at that point? Because it's it's not like you were necessarily winning a whole bunch of business away from the competing custodians because hardly anyone else was in the business, right? I'm, I'm trying to think back. I guess Schwab was in it because Schwab launched advisor services right around the the, the same time in, in 90, 92, 93 timeframe. Was it basically just you and Schwab at that point? And, and were you competing mostly for advisors against each other or like – advisors outside of your ecosystem he were trying to bring into this world it, i think it, it was really a combination but for the most part it was it, it was and still is very difficult to get an advisor to move client assets off a current custodian to another custodian that's always been kind of an uphill battle we, we all uh, hate repapering <laughs> uh, they're right it's not it's not a revenue generating activity and so what we did back then is we had different sources of lists of advisors so we would go to all the conferences and the NAFA, the FBA conference, we would go to those conferences and compile lists. We had different sources, but this was even before, I think maybe it was around the late 90s that we got the brilliant idea to go directly to the SEC to see if we can get uh, raw data from the SEC. And we were able to get a disk that had lists of advisors. And then we'd have salespeople that would Pound the pavement and you know pound the you know get on get on the phones and right because it's it's not like there's an online you know IAPD search with an API like we're in we're in the 90s the internet is still coming forward I don't I don't, I don't even know if the SEC had a website yet so interesting thought of just hey all these advisors have to file their ADVs you guys have all this data at the SEC like it's theory it's public data can can we have a copy. <laughs> Yeah. And so what we did is it, we actually got a disc from the SEC. And that's, I mean, that's how we did it. And then we loaded up the disc and we hired some young, super smart kid to see what, uh, you know, if they could make sense of what was on the disc. So, so if you're caught, like if you're getting SEC data and calling on, on RIAs, like where would they have been or what were they doing at the time before you called them, where these basically have all been advisors that were still doing as the well the quote old model from five to ten years prior, like are you know are you an RIA that's still getting you know POAs to trade your clients in a retail account? We have an advisor account. <laughs> Come check out advisor services. Like was that the I mean was that the sale? Was that the dynamic at the time? Yeah, I mean, where the advisors were coming from it was really a mix. I mean, some were in financial services, some were just uh, hobbyists on their own, where they like to uh, manage their own money, and which became much easier to do after May Day in 1975 when commissions were deregulated. And uh, it, was, it was really a mix. Some were financial planners that were getting into the money management uh, business. And so it was really all over the map. A lot of them were part-timers. And 
and the part timers were were sometimes you know tough to deal with because they weren't all in. But it, so we tried to focus on the firms that were more on the on the all in side, and and we could were able to find those firms uh, at especially at the, going to the conferences. And when you went to the conferences, those typically were the people that that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing for a living. And I guess particularly if you're going to events like NAPFA and Financial Planning Association, like that's that's where the planning more holistically oriented advisors were going. So if you're going there and they're doing that stuff and they're not charging on assets, like, hey, I'd like to introduce this you to this cool new model where you can do assets under management and we could support you on our platform. That's right. That's right. And so, and that's kind of how we got started. And when you, so that was, that was kind of the early into the later nineties, but then, I I mean, the business still was, was, you know, really it was a retail based company and we made a couple acquisitions in the late nineties. And so they asked me to go off and do something with one of the companies that we had just acquired. And uh, I did that the list uh, in 1998 and 1999. And then they pulled me back in, in the early 2000s. And Frank Petrilli was running, he was the CEO at the time. And Frank Petrilli had really taken an interest in this business and really wanted to make an investment and take it to the next level. And so he asked me to come back in, in uh, the early, in early 2000. And, and we had a chat about it and I, and we both agreed that, listen, we're either going to be in or we're going to be, if we're going to be in, we got to go hundred percent. We need to make investments in technology. We need to make this a real focus of the company. And uh, Frank absolutely supported that and agreed to it. I was able to come in and make a, a, a few key strategy changes as well as get funds to uh, invest in in technology. And we had just launched, when I came back in 2000, we had just launched uh, our platform called Veo. And our before we had Veo, we had another system called Waterhouse Online for Advisors, nicknamed Walla. And that was, but that was not a web-based system. And it was a it was a decent system when it was up, but back then the technology was was sketchy. So and it would go up and it would go down. It wasn't really sufficient to for advi- anywhere near anything that advisors use use today. But in 2000, when we had Veo and made additional investments in Veo, and that was our web based platform, that really helped us and helped advisors take it to the next level. And the other key strategy change that we made was we started to go after larger firms. Up to that point, it was all about, let's just get as many advisors as we can. But in 2000, you had more larger firms. And so we said, let's try and get in with these larger firms. And of course, we love for them to move their funds from another custodian, but we know that'll be tough. But let's get in there and try and introduce the technology that we have and and show them that hey we're an alternative and at the time there was a a mood and i think to this day there still is there's a mood amongst the advisory community to not necessarily have all their eggs in one basket so they were willing to talk to us and we would introduce our platform and say you know we understand that it might be a challenge to move all your all your clients over to us we'd love for you to do that but why don't you just give us a shot by starting to give us some of your new business and that foot in the door strategy really worked well for us. And we took the business at that time, we had about $9 billion in AUM. And and we really, the growth trajectory, used that strategy, the business really started to take off. And so when you're looking at 
quote, larger firms by this time, like what were larger firms at this point? Are you now looking for you know, hundred million dollar firms? That was that was that large at the time to say, you know, you got a hundred million at Schwab, you want to go multi custodial with us? Absolutely, hundred hundred fifty million dollar firm. That's it. Interesting. You, you pointed out then, and I think still true today, you know, that there there does seem to be this effect that you know, if you're so independent minded that you break away from some broker dealer or insurance platform to go independent to hang your own shingle as a as an independent RIA, part of that independence mindset really often is I you know I don't want to be solely dependent or captive on one platform. Which means even when we're independent with our custodians, there's a there seems to just be a lot of natural inclination for most of us as on the independent advisor side to say, well, I'm, then I'm going to be multi-custodial, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to be tied to one independent firm. I got to have two or more independent firms, you know, technology, uh, uh, systems inefficiencies be darned. Right. I mean, you want optionality, right? They don't want to, they, they don't want to be locked into a particular firm and they want an op, if they get upset with one custodian, they can just turn the spigot off to that custodian and, and, and turn it on higher to the other custodian. You know, it's an interesting dynamic. Like I, I even remember it for our advisory firm. You know, I think in the in the early two thousands we were we were multi custodial as well. Schwab and I, I think actually TD at the time, and, and I want to even say we had a couple of dollars like first clearing and like an early version of the first clearing platform, and it, it like it was so operationally inefficient that. We dialed all that down, and I think by about 2002 or 2003, just went 100% to one custodian because we were one or 200 million and finding it just too administratively and operationally inefficient to be multi-custodial. But then both as the business grew and the technology's gotten better, it's become easier to be multi-custodial again, and now that pendulum seems to be swinging back the other way. Yeah, well, I yeah, I think... uh... I mean, my observation was, especially with the larger firms, that they're almost exclusively multi-custodial. And, and, and one, of the, one of the biggest hurdles you run into, of course, is the back office. It's not necessarily the principal, the owner, the founder. They might agree to go with you, but then you have to deal with oh, yeah, the it's staff. Are like, staff. what have you done to us? <laughs> right. What have you done to us? And they will sabotage, right? Because they're like, are you kidding me? I have to learn another system. I have to get to know these other people. You have totally screwed up my life. And so we have to go in there. We had a whole strategy around winning over the operational staff. And that worked quite quite well for us. But when you think about it, it, it they would, uh, you know, early on before we figured out, oh boy, we got to do something here with the, with the folks, you know, running these, these offices, they would uh, go back to the principals and just say, no, we can't work with this firm. These, these guys aren't any good. And so we had to get over that. We had to get beyond that. And we did. And that worked out well for us too. Interesting. So, so in the early 2000s, like you've, you've got track with traction with the volume advisors, you're at 9 billion of AUM on the, on the platform. You start going after some larger firms to be multi-custodial. So like what what happened next in the in the evolution of the platform the evolution of this RA custody model for you Well we kept uh, we continued to build out and make Veo better and better there was one point I think that was critical in the history of Veo was where we went 
open to an open platform, and today that's called Veo Open Access. But there was a point where the custodians are all trying to solve the advisor problem of the lack of integration be- between amongst the systems that they use, the desktops. And so we looked at that and said, you know, geez, we you know, to go out and try and get an advisor to, you know, to, if we were to build out the best portfolio management system, for example, we might think it's the best, but you get a hundred different advisors in a room and you ask them, what do you think is the best portfolio management system? You'll come out with 110 different answers. So he said, let's go with an open open strategy and allow technology providers to write into us. That's worked uh, very well today i think you have all the custodians are are, are doing or at least trying to uh, to go with a strategy like that so when when did that shift happen that was around 2006 2007 right around the time we were i mean there were and there were a handful of things going on there one we td waterhouse td td bought waterhouse in 1996 and then ameritrade bought td waterhouse in uh, 2000 and six. So that that was going on as well. And of course, you had the broker deal exemption rule that was going on. And in you know the 2000s, we were able to, uh, we were unconflicted. So we were able to take a position that was on the side of the independent advisors around the broker deal exemption, uh, exemption rule. And that really, that also put us on the map where Advisors, I think, up until that point, might have looked at the custodians with a with a leery eye, and maybe they still do. But I think that really gained uh, a lot of uh, loyalty for uh, for the company because we took the side of advisors. They really they really appreciated that, and that helped put us on the map as well. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, you know, there was, you know, our like our modern controversial regulatory stuff was is you know regulation best interest and and department of labor's fiduciary rule over the past couple of years but the the big regulatory issue of the early 2000s was this thing called the broker dealer exemption or the, known as the Merrill Lynch rule for short because Merrill was one of the firms that had that had lobbied for it. Uh, it it was an exemption the SEC put forth in 2000 sorry in 1999 i think that Basically said, wirehouses and other broker dealers could start offering these these fee based wrap accounts, but and and receive what essentially looks like an AUM fee, but not have to register as investment advisors and essentially allow them to avoid fiduciary duty while offering these fee based accounts. And you know, it was controversial in the industry because it was the debate at the time of our broker dealers basically doing the fiduciary model without needing to register as investment advisors and be fiduciaries. And the Financial Planning Association sued the SEC, challenged the rule, won, and had it vacated ultimately in 2007. Uh, but it was this big battling controversy for a number of years about, you know, on the one hand, people saying, look, broker dealers going more fee based is a heck of a lot better than the old purely commission based world where all the churning stuff happens. But then the fiduciary and the RA side of the industry saying, no, 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 that's not fair. Uh, like, If they're going to charge fees, they have to be treated as fiduciaries like all the rest of us that are charging fees. And and it was a, it was a major industry battle with sort of the classic dividing lines, you know, the, the quote unquote industry, predominantly broker dealers on one side and kind of the consumer advocates and a fiduciary fringe on the other side. So it w- would have been a very big deal at the time that 
that TD could actually take the the fiduciary RA position and not and not be not be fighting for the broker dealer exemption. Yeah. So that uh, that really put us on the map with the RAs, and still to this day, I, when I I talk to our RAs and bump into RAs, they still go back and talk about how we how we took that stand, and they really appreciated it. Another interesting thing that happened when you think about the, we'll call it around the you know circa two two thousand and seven, and this will give you an idea uh, in terms of how advisors started to grow. You started to get more billion dollar advisors, and what was happening is these. Uh, these advisors that most of you know, of them were doing quarterly rebalancing, and they it, it, the ones that were hitting a bumping up on a on a billion dollars, their quarterly rebalancing as they went through their client base was taking a quarter, and they they did, couldn't let it get to the point where it was going to take longer than a quarter, and so they came up with this system called iRebal, and uh, iRebal was introduced uh, to me. A handful of advisors that that founded it, and I was based in New Jersey at the time, so I went to see the the uh, uh, the guy who uh, Gobin Daryanani, who was behind that. Gobin has since passed away. Super super guy, but he was operating with one uh, with an I, I didn't I thought it was a company like a major company. I went to see him in Morristown, on uh, the second floor of uh, Morristown uh, building in Morristown, New Jersey. And I oh, was, it was Gobin and a fellow engineer. It was Gobin and the engineer. And, but I didn't know it at the time, but I walked in there and I walked down a hall to Gobin's office and I saw one guy in one office and the other offices were empty. And I walked in, I said, where is everybody? So where is everybody? I said, this is everybody. <laughs> and I, I sat down and got to know Gobin. Then I, I quickly realized, oh boy, I said, you've got a technology that some of the largest advisors in the industry are 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 running their businesses off this this technology and you know god forbid gobin goes across the street to get a sandwich and he gets hit by a bus and so we moved fairly quickly to acquire uh, iRebal we were able to come to an agreement and and make that acquisition integrated into our system. And so it's it's things like that. You know, when you look back, what has enabled advisors really to, to scale their businesses? Uh, a lot of it has been the investments that the custodians have made uh, in technologies and systems uh, have enabled them to do that. So I'm, I'm curious about a little bit more of this, the decision to, to launch VO Open Access, because the... You know, the the custody model in the mid two thousands, I guess, really even late nineteen nineties into the two thousands. You know, as you noted, this this trend was happening where advisors were starting to go multi custodial. Everybody was worried that you know, at a minimum, you don't want to lose your advisors because they switch and deal with the pain of repapering. Ideally, you know, if, if you're the one that already has the bulk of the assets, you don't even want someone to put a part of their money. Elsewhere, because you know it's it's the potentially the first foot out the door, and so so much of the focus at the time was proprietary technology. Like the it seemed like the dominant model at the time was have technology that inextricably binds your advisors to you. So you know, Schwab had bought Portfolio Center back in the late nineteen nineties, and Fidelity was making a lot of proprietary software at the time. You know, just you know their their version of trying to make advisors more sticky 
And so then TD Ameritrade comes out with this like exact opposite version. Like what happens if we open access everything rather than trying to make everything more internal and proprietary? So I'm just like, take me through some of the thought process or the discussion that's happening at the time of how you end up going a direction that's so different than what everybody else was kind of doing as the dominant model at the time. Yeah, right. So it was it was a combination really of, you know, I'd like to sit back and say it was complete and total brilliance on the part of uh, my team. You know, maybe there was some brilliance in there, but it was also just uh, really experience with working with investment advisors and knowing and understanding how they think. And, and then there was some luck involved because it all happened right around the time that we uh, were acquired or just after we were acquired by Ameritrade. And so when you think about how advisors think, that example I gave you before, 100 advisors in a room, ask them an opinion on something, you'll come out with multiple answers. And so we knew that. And then, and then the other side of that was, okay, so if we try and develop a system that we think is the best thing for advisors, well, first of all, they're not going to agree with us that it's the best thing. And we're going to have to do all this customization and, and it's going to be a massive investment and a massive amount of work for us. Well, at the same time, you had other companies that were coming out with systems and you know, it used to be just Advent and Centerpiece. Then you had all these other systems that, that started to, uh, to come out. And the technology platform on Ameritrade had something that we didn't have at the time off, off the Waterhouse technology platform. And th- those were APIs. And the APIs with different formats gave us greater flexibility and allowed us to, to uh, allow companies, outside technology companies, to write into, in, into our systems. And so we said, geez, you know, we, we know we're kind of fighting an uphill battle if we try and build a system out on our own and get and to try and get these advisors to you know to to bring that on into their businesses or practices and so we said why don't we just you know put our apis out there and come up with a system of screening these companies and allowing them to write to us and then the advisors can pick whatever technology they want and these technology companies can plug into us and it'll be fantastic and that's what we did. And right off the bat, advisors absolutely loved it. Interesting. So, so there was just this like key technology difference, I guess, around the the underlying infrastructure that just Waterhouse had not architected itself with with APIs and Ameritrade had, I guess, because because I'm trying to remember, like Ameritrade did a whole bunch of a whole bunch of acquisitions during the the tech the tech boom, like day tech and like my discount broker and a whole bunch of these other like dot com. So I would imagine that they just, they ended up buying some, you know, so some trading platforms that were built in the late nineties and two thousands when everybody else was still running on technology they built in the seventies and eighties that they just had this more modern infrastructure that you didn't necessarily have previously that made open architecture possible when, when I guess, Basically, all of the other custodians were still on their their legacy technology at the time. They just they weren't architected for APIs. They couldn't. They couldn't. They literally couldn't do it and compete against you at the time. That's correct. So we had a competitive advantage there, a structural competitive advantage, and and uh, and we jumped on it. Interesting, interesting. And so that that more than anything was driving the the open access structure. Like, 
I don't mean to make it sound greedy for Ameritrade or anything, but like, hey, wouldn't it cool, be cool if we made the open access platform and then everybody else can make the software and then we don't actually have to make it. We just facilitate the the connections. Like then a hundred advisors can have a hundred different things and we don't have to make a hundred different things. We just- That's right. Let, let, let advise, you know, what's best to breed. Let the independent advisor determine what's best to breed, right? These are not, these, you know, independent advisors, you know, underline the independent, right? And call it, you can, you can add a fiercely before the word independent too. And, and that's, that's the way most uh, RIAs are in this, in this industry. We recognize that. And, we knew that it would be very difficult to develop and maintain our own core systems like that, like portfolio management. And so we had an opportunity. We said, you know, let them choose and we'll just let these folks uh, plug into us. Worked out great. Well, and I, and I know in practice, you know, the, the rest of the industry has all at least partially come to that, that approach and worldview. You know, some of the platforms are a little bit more proprietary and closed than others, but but all of them now have built APIs and do at least some level of of open architecture to, to structure because particularly now when everybody's you know 5x or 10x larger than they were even even 10 to 15 years ago, just there's so many different advisors that want so many different things. Like you you can't build one all-in-one thing that serves all of them. So either you can be a niche solution and be an all-in-one for a particular group, but for custodial platforms who manage who measure themselves in hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, like you can't be a niche and you can't be everything to everyone. So you you kind of end out with this structure that that you guys figured out a long time ago. Okay, let's build the thing we're good at. We'll just let everybody buy the rest around it. That's right. That's it. And and, and all the custodians. I mean, the custodians are they're all smart. They all they all recognize that uh, the, you know in this in this industry. I mean, if an advisor, the way an advisor looks at it, well, if I ha- if I if somebody's telling me I have to use this type of technology and I can only use it at their firm, well then am I really an independent advisor or am I a captive advisor? And, and, you know, I, I got away from being a captive advisor. And so I want optionality. I want flexibility. And so they love the one firms give them that, that optionality. Talk to us as well about the, like the TD Ameritrade acquisition and integration itself. Because on the one hand, you, as you said, you, you got access to some cool new technology that, you know, others really didn't have at the time, right? The, Ameritrade was more architected for APIs when when nobody else was yet, so you could go open access earlier than the rest. But you know, I have some vague memories of this uh, of stories back at the time that the actual integration was not smooth at the time, though. Like the the Ameritrade TD integration that there were like speed bumps and operational hiccups. I still remember one advisor who said like he had clients that got statements that showed zero balances, like statements went out and the money wasn't there because of some reporting snafu that happened right after the integration. What's it like going through just massive integrations of that size and dealing with all the all the speed bumps that that come up in a you know, in a business where we're not always very forgiving as advisors. 
it was a super interesting time for us. And it was really it was magnified on the advisory side because the retail side was almost totally unaffected by it. But because on the advisory side, you have you think about it, you have one person that sits on top of hundreds and sometimes thousands of accounts. So it just takes one or two incidents to occur within that group, but it's all coming back to the RIA. And if it happens in one account for an RIA, they assume it must be happening to all my accounts and oh my gosh, what's what's going on here? So you know, there, there, were, there were things that occurred after the integration. And I would say it took one, one and a half to two years to clear, kind of clear everything out. You know, it was it was a very, you know, we thought it was a difficult period at the time. But what you have to do when you go through those tough periods is it's leadership is, is really critical. And we just continually re- reiterated to our team that, listen, we've got a great business here. We've got a great platform. And we will get through this, and when we get to the other side, we will be much stronger than than when we went in. And so, while the team, you know, went through tough periods, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, they would they would say, "Oh, geez, this was a tough week," or "This happened," or "That happened," around statements coming out. And then, you know, I would come in on Monday morning and you know, slap a book down on the table and say, you guys think you have a tough, read, you know, read this, you know, and a book about the D-Day or, you know, some something that some prisoner of war went through in the Vietnam War. So, and then they would all laugh and we put it into perspective and we just keep, uh, you know, keep rowing in the, in the same direction. And we, I mean, that, that was really part of it at the time of just keeping the team on board was like, let's keep this pain in perspective because we got to do something to pick people up when they're getting beaten up about all these operational snafus. That's right. And 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 I'll tell you, the, the team just was absolutely incredible. They were amazing and everybody pulled together and worked really hard over the next one to two years and made sure that, you know, all the bumps were smoothed out and uh, and the business did really well. We actually, we our selling almost came to a grinding halt during that period. And, and we utilized our sales team to, to really just uh, help us out with our business and make sure that advisors were doing okay and just to keep the business that we had. And we, 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 t- we took our sales team and, and essentially – almost completely stopped selling. So it was an interesting time. But when you look at, you know, was it worth it? I mean, I don't think I'd want to go do that again. All right. I know I wouldn't want to go do that again. But when you look at, was it worth it? I can remember sitting around prior to to that to that merger and, and, and we're looking at each other, trying to do our planning and figuring out I think at the time it was we were planning for the next year we were planning for we were trying to come out with around a hundred million dollars in pre-tax, a hundred million dollars in pre-tax, right? And if you look at what that company is doing today, I mean they're in 2018, the net revenues were nearly five and a half billion dollars, and their pre-tax is was just under 1.9 billion dollars. That's their fiscal year 2018. And that's after another acquisition as well that they made. So yeah, it's it's sometimes you have to go through some struggles to take it to the next level, to get to the top of the mountain. And uh, and we did and we got there. And the company, you look at the company today and it's 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 doing incredibly well. And and that enables that enables them to take more and continue to invest back into into the business to continue to make the platforms even better and better and and allow advisors to continue to scale their businesses. 
So I'm curious, like what, I'm just wondering what, what else were you doing at the time? Just trying to keep everyone on board during a, during a stressful integration. Cause it, it strikes me like this is frankly similar to what a lot of us go through in the advisor world. You know, you, you break away and change firms or change platforms. You go through a merger or acquisition integration, you know, granted our, our size and scale is a little bit smaller than Ameritrade buying buying Waterhouse, but you know the, the dynamics for leadership, I think, are pretty similar. Of just what do you do to try to keep a team motivated on and on board when they're just getting slammed from all direction with people who aren't happy because of the speed bumps that just kind of inevitably happen when you when you try to do that big of an integration or a change. How how do you keep your team motivated and on board? Well, the first thing you have to do, I mean, communication is critical. And the first thing you have to do is you have to identify, okay, what's not going the way we want it to, and what do we need to do to take care of that? So you have to you have to look at it and you say, okay, we have a problem in this particular area. So, I mean, to give you an example, one of the challenges of that particular merger was that we had we, the Waterhouse accounts were being, we'll call it, uh, you know, airlifted and dropped onto or bolted onto the Ameritrade platform. But the Waterhouse business had uh, different uh, products and different um, other services that Ameritrade didn't have, like uh, mutual funds, a no-load mutual fund platform. So Ameritrade had to develop a whole new no-load mutual fund platform in order to take the Waterhouse business on. So whenever you develop a new platform, it's inevitable you'll have kinks that have to be worked out. So it was critical that we captured all the you know, all those kinks from the front lines, and we created a system to capture those and, and then get those to our technology team to smooth all those things all those things out. So it was the, the mutual fund system and the money transfer systems, and those in our statements, uh, because the statements that we had were different from the Ameritrade statements. And and I've been through a number of statement changes over the years. And I can remember, geez, in the, in the 90s when we were getting complaints about our statements. So we took all the feedback and we made changes to the statements. And then we've been, and we made the 50% that wasn't happy, happy, but then the 50% that was, wasn't anymore. Yeah. We're fine. We're like, you ruined my statement. What did you do to it? So then finally we just came out with different versions of our statements to try and make everybody happy. But because that's efficient. (laughs) You know, you get the whole, you get first of all, you have to recognize where you have your issues. Then you have to identify, okay, how are you going to take care of those issues? And, and then you take care of it and you fix it. And at the same time, you have to communicate to your front lines and to your clients and to your advisors, your independent advisors that are using your platform. You have to communicate with them exactly what's going on and what you're going to do about it. And you have to make sure that uh, that you, you, you're, you show them that you're absolutely confident that you're going to fix it. And this is the timeline we're going to fix this in. And uh, and you have to deliver. And we did. We delivered. We got it done. So you, you got through the mirror trade integration and survived with some battle scars so then like it takes a year or two to recover you finally get your groove back and then there's a financial crisis (laughs) perfect timing perfect timing so what came next for you guys like what is from the because you know i know what it's like from the advisor side but from the custodian side like what's what's it like going through financial crisis world and and what was going on for you guys at the time well, it was it was really. I mean, again, it was the the, the pain 
the firm was it, it was it, what was really interesting was at that time we would still hear from some advisors especially the ones that were breaking away that well you know your 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 company's kind of a small company it's not that well known i want to go to somebody that's you know a better known company and most of those companies that they would name would be a company that is no longer in business today or, or, or was acquired, even if their name still exists. So all these companies that were thought of, you know, the towering financial services companies of Wall Street, a lot of them didn't make it. And so when we came out of that unscathed, that was that was really a very proud moment for us. It doesn't, you know, mean that it wasn't a difficult to, you know, to what was going on in financial services. It was an extremely difficult time, but essentially because we were so conservatively run. We came out of that uh, unscathed. And I think where most of the pain was really was with the advisors on our platforms. And it didn't necessarily have anything to do with us. It was because their portfolios and their clients were, 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 you know, it was a really difficult and stressful time where there were periods where even bonds, uh, AAA rated corporate bonds were down 20, 25 percent for short periods of time. So it was just a tough time for advisors. So advisors kind of went into a mode of, you know, working with their clients, communicating uh, and and trying to keep their 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 clients from jumping off the cliff, so to speak. And there were not that many if you if you talk across the spectrum of RIAs, most of them I think were very successful in keeping their clients invested, and right, and and uh, thank goodness for that because you know we all know what the markets have done since they hit bottom in March 9th, two thousand and nine. And but if you talk to advisors where the clients did jump and get out, it'll it's remarkable how they almost to the day timed the market bottom. I mean, it really is remarkable. Uh, so, uh, fortunately, I think that's one of the great differentiators for advisors in terms of what do they do, what value do they provide to their their clients. A lot of advisors will tell you, "Well, geez, I, you know, I keep my clients invested, and because and I and I keep them from from you know doing something what what, what a lot of individuals uh, might be inclined to do, and that's sell low and buy high, right? I keep my clients from doing that." And a lot of advisors really had to go into that mode during the financial crisis to keep their clients, you know, down the path, focused on the long term. And fortunately, I think most advisors were successful, but it was a really stressful time. So then what what came next for you? After the financial crisis, it was just back into, hey, the markets are recovering. Things started to settle down and it was just going back into uh, into full growth mode. And, uh, and that's what we did, and that's what advisors did. And I, 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 we looked at one of the other things that we looked at was how do a lot of advisors came to us and said, you know, we're being criticized having gone through the financial crisis for our portfolios going down. And it's true that our portfolios may have recovered, but the standard uh, deviations may have have widened. Uh, since the financial crisis. And, you know, frankly, we, we don't look that good. So what do we do? So we came up with, at the time, we had acquired a, a company out of Chicago called Thinkorswim. And they were essentially a, a group of former SIBO traders. And so they knew the options markets quite well. And so we created a group that 
would train advisors on how to utilize derivatives to protect uh, client portfolios and to generate more income in client portfolios. And that became extremely popular. And even if advisors didn't want to utilize those types of strategies, we found that they needed to be able to explain why they didn't utilize those strategies because if they didn't, there was somebody down the street that was. And so they needed to be more fluent in talking about portfolio protection. And then with interest rates also plummeting to zero, they needed to be able to talk about how they might be able to generate more income uh, for clients uh, besides the dividends uh, that may have been on, on, their, on their stocks. And so they were able to learn more about uh, things like uh, writing cover calls, which surprisingly, most professional investment advisors were not focused on, on options up until that period. And now I think more are fluent uh, in options and derivatives. I still feel like we don't see a, a whole lot of people that are whole lot of advisors that are, are actively doing options and option strategies though. Like why do like, I guess I'm just wondering why, why do you think it's not even more mainstream or like why, why has it been so hard to, to get going and get adoption there in the first place? Well, I think it's, you know, it's like anything. When you go through a storm, it's, uh, I mean, everybody wants to buy hurricane insurance in the middle of the hurricane. And, and that's when it's, and that's when the insurance will be most expensive uh, if you can even get it. And so once you come out of the hurricane, then, you know, people say, okay, well, the, maybe the insurance, you know, we just got hit. What's likely we're going to get hit again. Maybe the rates come back down. So maybe, you know, maybe now's the time to buy. But then, and then you start to forget. And you say, well, geez, you know what? These portfolios are recovering. So we were right the whole time. So what's the point in even acquiring uh, portfolio insurance if if somebody has uh, a long-term time horizon? So I think people kind of go through these different thought, process, thought processes where they say, yeah, you know, I could do this, but do I really need to do it? And, it, it, and especially portfolio insurance, the desire for it, tends to amp up around times of volatility when really the smartest time to buy the portfolio insurance is to lock it in is when you don't have the volatility uh, if you want the portfolio insurance at all so it's a, really it's a case by case basis and we see at least i would see advisors that would utilize it not necessarily for their entire client basis but they would utilize it on a client by client uh, basis depending on on what would help that client sleep a little bit better at night uh, i think uh, it was also became a little bit more popular for them to utilize it to generate more income in their accounts but now that interest i mean interest rates are still low they could be going lower right we know you know the fed pulled back a quarter a point recently they might do it again and so there's still pressure on that, yet you can earn a little bit more on cash these days. In fact, one of the boards I'm, I'm on today is is a company called Max My Interest that focuses on identifying high-yielding savings accounts and moving uh, people's money around amongst the high-yielding savings accounts and making sure that they – are still covered by you know by the uh, by insurance by FDIC insurance. So now you can earn, but still, even in those high yielding accounts, you you can earn between two percent and two and a half percent. I mean, that's historically that's not that much. So I you know it's uh, it's on a client by client basis, and I, I agree that it's they're not widely used, but they're used a heck of a lot more today than they were before the financial crisis. So I know at some point you made a transition. You went from the 
the institutional side to the to the other side to the to the retail side of the of the TD Ameritrade business. So can like help us understand what the retail side of the of a platform looks like. So I think from the advisor end, like we we really only know the platforms that that we use and and kind of the dynamics and the economics of how they work. Like what's the business, you know, at, at your level when you're in a leadership position looking at this as a business line? Like what's What's the business of retail as contrasted to the business of institutional? Well, on the for the online brokers, the re- most of the folks on the retail side have have some level of self self directed bent. Whether it's you know they don't want to talk to anybody, they just want to use the technology. Don't call me unless you absolutely have to. Or yeah, I'll talk to you every now and then. Maybe I'll stop in a branch every now and then. But essentially, I'm making my own decisions. So they're self-directed individuals. They want to maintain some level of control in in their accounts, at least with the money they have with us. But what we found on the retail side over the years is that a lot of these individuals have money elsewhere. They may have an advisor at the, uh, one of the wirehouses managing some, if not most, of their wealth. And it really became a feeder on the retail side to identify these individuals and to try and introduce them to an independent RIA. And we built up uh, quite a business referring uh, assets to RIAs uh, through our advisor direct uh, referral system. And if you look at, uh, the, at the big custodians today, most of them have some type of a referral system like that. So it was in really an incredible feeder uh, to the advisors that wanted to participate and were able to participate in that program. But the other thing that the retail business did is it, it, it enabled us, when you look at scale, scale is absolutely critical in the brokerage business today. If you know, The ability to bring low-cost, value-added services to advisors, we were able to do it in part just because of the scale that we had from from the retail business, right? That made it that much bigger. And if you look at the other custodians, it makes them, most of them at least, it makes them that much bigger. And that scale enables you to be even more efficient and provide low-cost services. And that's a benefit to the REAs out there and their clients. Yeah, that to me is one of the interesting effects I think is very underappreciated in our in our advisor world, you know, with with more and more custodians at least blurring the lines, maybe some a little bit more than others, about where does retail end and where does the RA institutional platform begin as as you know more and more advised assets are are ending up on the retail side with the rollout of CFPs and wealth management platforms and so-called robo advisors and just you know an ever widening range of managed accounts, you know the the lines get a little bit blurrier. It's leading to more and more discussion these days around you know channel conflicts. Like, hey, Mister Custodian, you know what's going on? You're supposed to be here for my RA business, but you're also doing all this retail stuff. Are are you competing against me? And and I think sometimes forget that. You know, there actually is a need for the platforms to do that, not because they literally want to compete against their advisors, but the custody business is a scale business. And so, yeah, when you add hundreds of billions or a trillion or two dollars on the retail side, it makes the RA custody platform cheaper, like a lot cheaper. It's it's not a coincidence that you basically the the big four of 
RA custody these days are you know TD Ameritrade and Schwab and Fidelity, which all have huge retail divisions, and Pershing, which has a huge broker dealer division. And so, like every sizable player in the RA custody business is only a sizable low cost player in the custody business because they have the retail business. That that's absolutely true. That's right. And, and when you look at the differences. In, in, in the retail business and in the institutional business or the or the custody business, it's not you don't you don't have a lot of disclosure out there, but there is one custodian that that breaks out the disclosure, and you can see that they generate many more revenue dollars per asset dollar that they take in than they do in the advisor custody business. So the retail business is is generally ex- extremely profitable compared to the RA business. The RA business, the way that custodians earn, earn revenues, it's, it's, it's really, it, it, it's pretty simple. I mean, there aren't, you know, the, the, you don't have a lot of margin and margin leads to stock lending, which is, can be a very profitable business. So you don't have a lot of that in the RA space because there isn't a lot of, of margin lending and just margin in and of itself is, uh, can be an incredibly, incredibly profitable business. It's essentially, it's the transaction fees. It's a spreads on cash and it's fees from products, either proprietary products or third party products, you know, the, the shareholder service fees. And, and that's, you know, the, that's the, those three things generate the bulk of the revenues for the custodians in the, on the RIA side. Transaction fees. So, you know, that five to seven dollars a trade times a zillion trades still adds up. Fees from products, so I guess either you know proprietary products if you're using your custodian's own funds, because you know, obviously Schwab and Fidelity in particular have a pretty big base of those. You know, Pershing, not at all. TD Ameritrade's not not a big player in that. You know the the shareholder servicing fees, so the the sub transfer agent fees that go from mutual funds to whatever platform they're on when you don't hold the mutual funds direct, and and maybe in an ETF world just some. You know some sponsor backend access <laughs> dollar fees that get paid to get to get onto platforms, and then the the cash spreads. You know it it, it fascinates me that you know m- I mean most of us in advisor world, particularly these days when when cash yields are so low, hold virtually nothing in cash. We try really hard not to have anything in cash. You know you you, you often have to have a couple percent because. You got to facilitate fee sweeps and the client may be in retirement withdrawal mode since so many of us have retired clients. So you got to hold a couple of percent to, to facilitate their cash distributions. But the the average cash holding amongst advisors is usually no more than a few percentage points of a client's account. But then when you go look up the profit and loss of, of, you know, of custodians and you know, we tend to pick on Schwab the most, not to literally pick on Schwab, but they're publicly traded and their financials have a lot of detail. So you can you can just do the math more easily on Schwab's PL. And you know, more than 50% of all of Schwab's revenue is you know, the the spread they make on cash, like a few percent of our clients' cash that they sweep over to their affiliated bank and you know they get to earn margin on it, right? Classic banking business, you pay depositors less and you lend it more. And like to me, it's just fascinating from a business model perspective, like RA custodians are basically cash management businesses that happen to do trading and custody on the side. Yeah, I'll tell you, it, uh, it's, 
like, yeah. economically, that's how they work. Yeah. They're very similar. When you think about you think about a brokerage account and think about how it's similar to how a bank manages its balances when they have a lot of checking accounts, right? So you have a checking account, you have a lot of money going in and going out, but when you take the hundreds of thousands of accounts together, banks pretty much know roughly how much they'll have in, in, in total. And right, it gets it gets pretty stable. Pretty the stable. patterns of inflows and outflows are very stable. You know when the direct deposits come in. You know when the bill pays tend to go out. It averages out after your first hundred thousand clients or so, and you just average out with this ginormous pile of cash—a small small dollar per account times a zillion accounts. That's right. And so even though advisors typically don't keep a lot of, a lot in cash. They, you know, because they're in and out of uh, transactions, so there's cash that's generated from sales, and that cash is there before it's reinvested. And like you said, some advisors do like to keep a little bit in, in cash for some of their clients for a variety of reasons. There is an amount that you know you can tend to, you know, get a feel for roughly how much cash you'll have off your off your asset base, and it changes and it changes over time. But you're you're able to manage through that. But it's generally viewed to be transactional cash, and so advisors that will have cash and they'll have it. They know that they'll have that money sitting in cash, uh, a fund sitting in cash for a longer period of time. They'll do something else so that maybe they'll put it in a CD or or, or whatever by treasuries. But if they're uncertain on the time frame, you know, and they're comfortable leaving it there, they'll leave it there. I think where when you look at and, and they're not, you know, they're less concerned about how much they're earning. And I think that's something else that came out of the financial crisis uh, when advisors uh, were stretching in some cases for a few more basis points. And they advisors, some advisors invested in the reserve fund. And we know what happened with the reserve fund that broke the buck. So I think advisors that really made them nervous. What you're seeing more of today is advisors are, are, are starting to recognize that some of their wealthy clients hold cash away from them. They hold cash away from their, their brokerage assets. One of the things that's being pitched today by one of the boards that I'm on is that wealthy investors typically hold about 26% of their assets in cash. Now, that's not what you see in the investment accounts for RIAs, right? It's not – it's these wealthy investors, they have money – uh, held uh, away elsewhere, and so I think a lot of advisors are trying to re- are starting to recognize that, and they're trying to uncover that amongst the, those those that held away cash among their client uh, bases, and trying to draw that in and and get that invested in either higher yielding instruments or or get it into the investment yeah. accounts. Well, and when when you look at frankly some of the platforms that if not compete with us directly, at least compete with the custodians, the retail brokerage platforms, you know, uh, places like robo-advisors, like Wealthfronts, you know, they they rolled out a high-yield cash option and pulled in a billion dollars in in less than three months when they're only, you know, in, in air courts, like they're, they're only a little over 10 billion of AUM. So you, you imagine what that's like, like, what would it look like if you could add ten percent of your AUM in three months by just rolling out a decent yielding cash option? Like that's a it's a heck of a growth opportunity, even if you're not necessarily billing on cash because you're not doing anything with it yet. You, if you hold it on platform right next to you, there's probably a more likely chance that you'll get to help with that at some point. But we all get stuck right now because no one wants to put their cash on. 
brokerage platforms because it doesn't it doesn't pay right it, it literally pays to keep the cash elsewhere right right and i think it's just critically important for advisors today to recognize you know you really have to pay attention in terms of where you do put your clients cash don't get yourself caught in another reserve fund type situation don't get yourself caught you know with it with, with a you know a bad bank uh, or or beyond the fdic insurance and uh, and just be careful you know you, you gotta you gotta really think about that cash because it's you think it's safe you think there isn't a problem until there is a problem and then your client's money even in, in if it's insured, your client's money could be tied up for a period of time. But, you know, and all that being said, advisors, you know, identify that cash and people should have cash for different reasons. But at two and a half percent, advisors, I don't think they're earning their fee, putting their, their client's money, uh, you know, getting returns at two and a half percent. So advisors typically, you know, for that reason, they know they have to be that their clients have to be invested in the, in the market to earn a decent return and to, to beat inflation. And that's what they're one of the things they're getting paid to do. Yeah. It just, the weird effect to me is I feel like we have this fundamental misalignment now between frankly, the, the interests of, of advisors and the interests of the platforms that we're on, you know, the custodial platforms make more money when we trade more, when we hold more cash and when we use, either more mutual funds or just more products that they can get paid on the front end or the back end, which you know directly or indirectly is going to increase the cost because the money has to come from somewhere and it, you know, it ultimately comes out of the client's pocket. And so you know what's ended out instead is we're getting you know more tactical and disciplined in our trades. We're seeking out lower cost products, including ones that don't pay the back end dollars, which of course is you know, leading to other conflicts between certain asset managers and their platforms. You know, if we've got rebalancing software, we program our rebalancing software to make sure that we don't hold any more in cash than is absolutely unequivocally necessary just to cover whatever the most near-term needs are because clients don't want to hold short-term cash. And it, and it just strikes me that like we're in this position where as advisors, you know, the best way to get a win for our clients is to stick it to a custodian. Not not because we're literally trying to be mean and sick it to the custodian, but because all of the custodian's profit models come directly out of our clients' pockets, we look good in front of our clients by making our custodians look bad and and dismantling their profit centers as best we can using our technology. It just it just feels like a very strange and not necessarily sustainable dynamic. Like not that custodians aren't entitled to earn revenue and make a profit for the business service that they provide. But like, it's not a great setup when I look good by making my custodian's profits look worse. Yeah. Well, listen, I think, I, I think you have to be careful there too, right? Be, because most of the custodians have really reduced dramatically their costs, their trading costs, and they've made available all types of low cost products. And, and so I, I took a look at the, uh, publicly available information for one the one custodian that does disclose it. And if you look at their total revenues and their advisor services business and divide that by the by the assets that they that I, that they control in the advisor services business, you come out to about eighteen basis points. So like that that's that's what the custody business drives at the end of the day. Like you put all the different stuff in there and all the different buckets, five to seven dollars here on a trade little bit of 12B1 fees from that fund I hold, you know, a couple 
percent on a couple percent of cash. Like you average it out, it's eighteen basis points on on an advisor's custody assets. Yep, at, at that one custodian at least. Yeah, and and I would imagine that's probably not entirely unique across the platforms that they're you know they're doing fifteen to twenty or fifteen to twenty five basis points as a as an average yield of of advisor assets. I think you could take that custodian and and you know look across the, the the platforms and if you think that the other platforms are dealing with similar types of advisors, I think it's probably it'll probably put you in the ballpark. So it just it makes me wonder like what what happens if at some point custodians just roll out a basis point model like hey instead of you know instead of pay as you go out of your client's pocket for what is you know essentially our back end front end or back end commissions on all the things that we use and implement with our clients like what happens if someone just says hey we'll we'll just do a 20 basis point fee but you know in exchange for the 20 basis point fee like transactions are free we'll actually give you a money market that pays you know two and a half percent or or whatever the going rate is at the time like we'll give you the cheapest of the clean cheap shares because we're not going to take anything on the back end because we're charging up front. Like you don't get to double dip because obviously everybody would be pissed about that. But what happens if you know custodians go to a basis point model where now we all win when the assets get bigger and we all lose when the assets get smaller and we don't have the tension of my clients do better if I can stick it to you on the cash yields and cut the transaction fees and cut out your you know, your sub TA fees and your shareholder servicing fees, which is kind of the game that we play today. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely uh, perfectly reasonable thing to ask your custodian to go back to them. And, and if that's if that's what you'd like to do for your business and for your clients, I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to go back to the custodians and ask them that question. And you're, you're using publicly available information and uh, saying, listen, I can see that this is roughly what you're generating. Maybe can we can we take out the conflict of of all these other things and, and commissions and cash spreads and all that. And can we you just charge me a basis point fee and see where it goes? But I think it's something that personally, I think it's something that advisors that should be thinking about should maybe be uh, uh, talking to their custodians about. And I think it's something the custodians should be thinking about too. But just, you know, I, I know a few people that have talked about this already and, and the, you know, the first response is something, you know, is usually either one of two things like, why would I pay for all this stuff that I get for free? But I still hear that sometimes. And then I have to do the whole like, well, it's not free. Like your client's paying for it. <laughs> they they may not see that they're paying for it, but like that's how commissions work, right? We don't always see that the commission's there, but the commission comes off the back end and the client still pays at the end of the day. You know, the, the back end of a custody platform is still at its core. Like it's 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 an old-fashioned brokerage model. And like not to knock it, just that's that's the mechanics of how it works. But like they make all the way, they make their money all the ways that brokerage firms make money, which is you know commissions and implementation and 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 proprietary products, and just like that's the fundamental model. And you know, so on the one hand, like I see some firms that say, "Well, why would I pay for something that's free?" And it's it's like our advisor version of the same conversation we all have with clients, particularly on the RIA side, when the client comes in, it's like, well, I can't pay you a 1% AUM fee. Like my current advisor is free. And we have to like, well, let me undersell you a little bit more about the proprietary products and the commissions that your old advisor is making and all the ways that they make on the back end. Like that's always been the conversation that 
RA advisors have to have with clients who previously worked with commission-based advisors. And I feel like now we're we're getting into the same conversation with our platforms about the same discussion. Like, oh, you've been working with a commission-based RA custodian. You know, have you ever considered a fee-based RA custodian and what that might look like instead? Right, and I and you know again, I think I think advisors should should be thinking about this, and and the custodians should as well. Was this ever like a conversation that came up when you were in this world? You know, I know you've been out of the 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 custody business now for for a couple of years, but like, was this even a thing that floated around in the in the nineties and two thousands, or is this just kind of been a more recent discussion that seems to be starting to crop up in the industry? Well, I think I think you've you've brought some attention to it. I've read some of your articles and seen some of your commentary about it over the last uh, year or so. I don't remember, I don't remember exactly when you first started talking about it, but I, I think if you go out there and talk to some of the larger advisors today, I think you actually might find that you know you, you might find some of these folks that have a, 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 this type of an arrangement with some of the custodians. I know some have done like at, at least wrap accounts, like fee-based wrap accounts for their trading. It doesn't necessarily mean they get the you know the higher yielding cash kinds of stuff and the and the other things you might put with it. But they at least have collapsed their trading fees into a into a basis point structure. I know there are some firms out there of that of that arrangement. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, you know to me, if I was running a custody business today, it would be about uh, options. I'd want um, optionality, I should say, uh, and. If an advisor wanted to come in and they wanted their clients to pay on a commission basis, I mean, we've got this model. If, a, if you want to do it in a RAF fee arrangement, uh, we've got this model over here. And and let the advisor choose. Let the advisor decide what's what's best for his or her clients. It's kind of the advisor version of let the advisor choose if they want to work on a commission basis or a fee Let basis. them decide. Let them decide. Listen, you'll have some advisors that think that, you know, geez, uh, that, that you know, fee for platform is a, that sounds like a great way to go. And you'll have others to say, no, nah, I think I can do better that, than that. I'll trade less. I'll keep less in cash. You know, I'll try and, I'll try, I'll try and let you, uh, make sure that you make as the least amount of money as possible off of me. But uh, you know, that's not, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. And you have to start asking yourself when you're down to 18 basis points in, in revenues. And, and of course there's a whole cost underneath this too, right? I mean, could you imagine an RIA trying to take on, all that that these that the custodians do, I mean, the same custodian I told you made uh, it was generating revenues of eighteen basis points off their off, off the AUM on their on their RIA platform on their um, advisor custody platform. The expenses, if you do the same math with the expenses, you come up to nine basis points. And there's just no way a small independent advisor can come anywhere near, near even close to replicating what a, essentially a custodian a custodian is a broker dealer what they're doing. Well, and and I'm not even sure it's possible for another custodian to 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 replicate that pricing without, as we said earlier, like without being able to piggyback it on. That's not just RA advisor services infrastructure. That's you know hundreds of billions or a trillion dollars of retail business that amortizes some of the same technology and infrastructure costs that lets you get that get that price down, right? I'm, I'm sure there's some you call it shared services overhead that the retail business helps to carry that makes the economics feasible for, on the one hand, custody to be as insanely low as it is, right? When you think about it, for just the sheer amount of technology that's actually there. Like the trading platform and the reporting and the data feeds and the trading execution, just like all the stuff that's there, 
to deliver at an average cost of nine basis points is just mind-blowing scale. Right. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And so you look at all the major custodians today, they, they, all, have, they, they all have scale. And if you look at some of the smaller custodians today, they've tapped into firms that have scale. So there's just no way you can go out there and just like start up a custody business from scratch and not at the very least tap into somebody that has, you know, that's one of the big players that has scale. Right. Well, you know, Trust Company of America is now is now backed by E-Trade, you know, Trade PMR is a smaller player, but they're actually built on the back end of the first clearing platform from Wells Fargo, you know, Shareholder Service Group works in a small RA space, but they're their backend infrastructure is built off of Pershing. Like every everybody has to tap into into some versions of that scale, or the the math just doesn't work, and you can't get the cost low. That's enough. right. And frank and frankly, you know, back going back to my Waterhouse days, that's what enabled us to really to to you know to to push hard in this business was the scale that we had from the retail business. And our founders never would have started a business from scratch in the RIA custody space. They just they they allowed us to get into it and allowed us to continue on, and they had the patience for us to grow that business and achieve kind of scale on its own. Only because we were tapped into the scale from the retail business. Well, as you said, you know, you were what uh, you got a billion dollars after the first three years, then you had a big sales push and doubled it to $2 billion in the fourth year. But, you know, for the the staff and infrastructure and what it takes to, to run an entire platform, like you weren't, you weren't making bank or probably even profit if you were, you know, if you just gather that $2 billion on your own in a standalone startup RA custody business, the, the math worked because it was all marginal revenue for marginal profit on top of the the waterhouse infrastructure and you know i think same thing for schwab advisor services when they launched in the early 90s in the, in the same manner like it was a it was a bolt on to the scale that they already had at the time in the retail discount brokerage business so as you look at it like where do you think the whole custody business goes from here like we talk a lot about the future of advisors it seems not so much these days about the future of advisor platforms even though platforms are growing ras are growing we kind of have to have a custodian unless we're running a you know a purely planning only no investments model so how do you look at the future of the of the custody business having been you know deep in it for the better part of 25 years well first of all because it's it's the custody business is riding the wave of the RIA business and the RIA business is just doing incredibly well it's it's where the majority of the growth is coming from a lot of these these platforms that you look at and while the retail business is a great business for uh, you know for for these uh, companies where you, you know where you can see it where they're publicly traded and they, they're disclosing it the growth there's there's incredible growth coming out of the RIA space because the advisors are doing so well and when you think about it from my the seat that I was in I had a sales force of thousands of advisors out there that were trying to grow their their businesses or practices, whatever they you know wanted to call them, in different philosophies out there as you and I know. Some to some it's a practice, to some it's a business, but whatever it is, 
typically most of them are trying to grow. They're trying to add, add clients on. And so it brings tremendous asset dollars into the custodians. And you you just, you just have the an industry that's going more and more towards fee-based. So even at the traditional, we used to call them full commission brokers, the old line wirehouses, you have most of the reps there are registered as uh, as RIAs under an RIA umbrella. And they're, they're Series 7 as well, but they're also under the RIA. And a decent amount of their business is going fee. And then what you'll have is, you know, some of them will stay, but some of them will decide that they want to break away. And so I, I, I see tremendous growth in the independent RIA space continuing for many years to come. Because I just think it's really a phenomenal model. I think it's a better model. And it doesn't mean that the commission model should go away. It doesn't mean that the commission model doesn't work in some cases, you know, for some for some investors in some situations. I, and I don't think it should completely go away. But for a lot of people, they just kind of recognize the fact that you, know, you can never take all the conflicts of interest out, but you get a lot of the conflicts of interest out with a fee-based RIA model, especially when you know they have that fiduciary uh, legally, they're deemed to be fiduciaries. And it, it doesn't mean that the guys on the other end, they're all crooks. You know, I think, I think the advisors themselves are starting to recognize whether you're an FC at, uh, at one of the big uh, old, old wired houses or or whether you're an independent RIA and you've been one for 20 years, I think everybody's just kind of recognizes, you know, it's, it's, it's in most cases, it's just a better model for everybody. So I see continued growth there. I see the custodians continuing to facilitate that growth. That's what's one of the strategies was really key to our, uh, you know, to growing our business was to do all that we could do to assist advisors to run more effective operations and uh, to run more effective back offices to the extent that we could uh, help them uh, deploy technologies to their operations to make them more efficient and more effective. Our objective, and I think you see that across with all the custodians, was always to to try and help the advisors spend more time with their clients. And that required getting them out of their, their back office operations. So what could we do to assist them with that? And I think you'll you'll see the custodians continue to push on that, and that'll help advisors grow faster, and then help the custodians grow faster. Which is basically just all a an ongoing technology discussion and and continuous reinvestments in the technology. It's it's a lot of it is technology, yes, but a lot of it is just basic processing too, and and systems, and making sure you have good processes and good systems. We came out. Uh, one year, we would have advisors that would get mad at us, and the principal would call us up, and they'd say, hey, my people in operations say, you guys screwed up X, Y, Z. So yeah, I was a big fact-gathering guy, so I would direct my team to go gather all the facts, and we'd sit there and look at it. we find out, well, geez, you know, they sent an application in that you know, was only – you know, that was missing 15% of the, uh, of the items, you know, the social security number was wrong or, or the customer, you know, didn't sign it. And so, and so like, don't, don't blame us because we do the due diligence on the form that you didn't fully fill right, out properly, right. which you then have to say in a really right. nice way. And so what we did is we, and you had to, right. You had the customer's always right. So you had to be careful on how you dealt with that. So what we did is we started, we came up with a scorecard. I believe that uh, that they, they still, my old firm still has those scorecards today, but we came up with a scorecard and 
we would send the scorecard to the advisor. And we'd show the advisor, you know, for example, what, uh, okay. so like here's how many apps we processed. Here's how many of them you gave us not in good order in the first place. And like just being able to show that's that back it. To so them. they'd have uh, not in good order percentages. And it really, all of a sudden, you know what? It created a much stronger, a much tighter partnership. So instead of having this, you know, head banging back and forth, you know, who did what? It was all of a sudden you you became partners and we would sit there and go down the scorecard and say, all right, listen, this is what went right and this is what didn't go right and this is what we screwed up and this is what we think, you know, you could help us and you could help yourselves if you did a better job with this. And it was it was just absolutely fantastic. It really it really changed the whole relationship. Interesting. Right, because now you're 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 creating an environment where you're partners to say Okay, you know, you don't like the paperwork bouncing. We certainly don't like bouncing the paperwork to you. So here's the NIGO rate. Let's figure out together how we're going to get this number down. And now what you'll see with technology is that technology will help with the NIGO rates because a lot of the – I mean, this was – you started this and everything was on paper. Well, now things are going – you have more electronic forms and applications out there. And so when, as these forms get better and better, they, they'll self-correct. So if you forget to put a social security number on an application, well, that should kick out. You should never be able to send that to a custodian. And, and, and then you want to even get it to the point where if you put an incorrect social security number on there, you know, let's, how do we find that out up front before that gets to the custodian? That might be a bit tough, but you know, how do you, so how do you look at all these different things so that, so that, the operations that you eliminate the NIGOs and and then everybody's operations run more smoothly. And then the custodians, right? The the costs are reduced to the custodians. And as they continue to grow their businesses and reduce their costs, then they're potentially able to reduce the cost uh, back to the clients or the advisor. All right. You know, at, at, at some point, if you're, uh, you know, if your cost to delivery ratio gets down the uh, 15 bips, 13 bips, 12, 10, 9, 8, right? You just divide operating expenses of the custody platform into total assets. The the lower that number goes, you know, the good news is the bigger your your gross profit margins. The bad news is you can't keep big profit margins forever because other people come and compete with you for them. So at some point you get room to cut your prices and maintain your margins. And that's just, I think, part of the natural evolution of technology drives costs lower. For, for providers and lower costs for providers eventually get passed through as lower costs for for consumers because if you don't cut your costs as your price as your if you don't cut your end pricing for consumers as your costs come down someone else is just going to come and eat your lunch and do it for you that's right and if you look at and just look at the business when I got into the business I actually got in in, um, in 1986 I started for waterhouse securities and our average commission back then was probably 60 70 dollars and that was an incredible bargain compared to what the full commission brokers were charging at the time we used to advertise you know how to save 70 percent off your stock commissions and in some cases the savings were 90 percent I mean there was an incredible savings yet the average commission was still in the 60 to 70 plus dollar range. It, you look today, I mean, we, we all know what the custodians are charging today. I mean, it's under $10, well under $10. And it's all because 
everybody's not just, you, you know, you've gotten scale, but you've gotten scale by leveraging uh, technologies, developing and leveraging better technologies and creating better processes in your back offices. So, so classically, we still think of these as financial services businesses, financial services firms. So is there some point where we just have to start reclassifying either brokerage firms or, or uh, at least the RA custody side of firms to, to say, like, these aren't financial services firms anymore. These are tech companies. Well, uh, I mean, like, do you cross that divide? I mean, there have been different times and periods where I've seen, you know, companies refer to themselves as technology companies, but I've heard of, you know, brokers referring to themselves as marketing companies. And listen, at the end of the day, Technology plays a huge role in everything that we do, right? I don't consider myself to be a technologist, but hey, listen, what we're doing today and the means that you're recording this, I mean, that's pretty cool technology, right? I'm not a technologist. It doesn't make me a technologist, but I use technology every day. I spend a lot of time on my iPhone, probably more time than I should spend on my iPhone. I manage uh, uh, you know, money on my iPhone. I mean, it's incredible the technology that we have today. It doesn't make us technologists. I think, uh, and I don't view the custodians, my, personally, I don't view the custodians. I don't even view online brokers as tech, uh, technology companies. Yet, technology plays an incredible role in everything that they do. I mean, it's absolutely critical to everything that they do and the services that they provide their underlying clients, whether it's retail or on the advisor side. But there's also a lot of marketing that they do. I don't say they're just marketing companies, but they spend a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases on on marketing. But it's just a part of what they do. At their core, what they are, at their core, they're still brokerage firms. And they are providing a means to an end. Advisors need to give, want to, are giving their, their, you know, investors need to accumulate wealth and, and build wealth for their, for their future and their, their retirement and other things. Advisors are helping them to do that and guiding them and advising them. And they need a way to get that done. And that's through brokerage firms that execute those transactions and, and safeguard their assets. So as you look back at observing the industry over the past several decades now, what surprised you the most in how advisors build their businesses and what they do? You know, I think, I mean, so many things uh, I guess I could I could say about that. But I think what's really surprised me is, you know, I always knew it was a better model. But you never think, and you always said, you know, this is a better model than the old-fashioned commission-based model. But, geez, how are you going to get the word out? Everybody, you know, this is such a small group. How are you going to get the word out? And now all of a sudden, right, where I think most investors still don't really understand the the difference between fiduciary and, and you know, even if it's best interest, uh, that might help or might make it worse. But more people because of the DOL rule. That came out and was eventually struck down. But because of all the noise around that, more individuals understand what the fiduciary independent investment advisor does and um, and what that means to the individual. And so, and you look at the the growth going from well under a trillion dollars to four trillion dollars in AUM. I think it's been very rewarding to grow up in. In, in this industry and to see the incredible growth that continues 
to this day. But when you're kind of in it and you're in the thick of things, you're not really sure it's ever going to happen. But all of a sudden you wake up one day and it's happened. So that's been you know extremely pleasant and rewarding surprise for me personally. I think the other thing is you, when, when you think about that incredible growth and you you look at how how poor most advisors are at marketing their businesses right or their practices or their services or again however you whatever you want to call it. i mean you have some that are unbelievable right you have marketing machines out there fisher investments marketing machine uh, you have fishers you know they have uh, you know the edelman's now edelman financial engines and you know the, the like the firm that peter maluk was just in the paper you know that his firm is in excess of 40 billion dollars i saw an investment in so you have firms that have grown their businesses either through acquisition or organically some of the ones i just mentioned have done it organically yet most advisors that's not what they do I was out to dinner with an advisor down in Florida a couple of months ago, and I asked uh, Frank, I said, well, how did, how did you grow your business? And he's up just under a billion dollars. And I said, how did you, you know, how do you get new clients? And he said, you know, the book, you know, he wrote a book. He wrote a book in the early 2000s, and people somehow get a hold of the book, and they like what they, they're reading, and they, they call them up. And of course, it, you know, client referrals are always big too, but but. You know, you can call advisors a lot of things, but for most advisory firms, you will not call them marketing and sales machines. <laughs> and despite that, despite that, look at how the industry has grown. It's unbelievable. And I think everybody can, in the industry, and I know I am, I'm just, I'm super excited about it. I get really excited to see how the industry's, how the industry's doing. And I love it, care deeply about it. And I think it's just, it's just fantastic to see where this industry has come and, 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 and where it's, uh, where I think it's going to continue to go. So what was the low point for your own career on this journey? Wow. I mean, I was, I was so fortunate to just have really an incredible career and, and the opportunity to lead uh, some incredibly strong teams. And I always said one of the, one of the best things I did was I was able to pick the, the right people and get people that were super smart and super dedicated and, and, and surround myself uh, with those people and let them go. And that's always how I try to operate. Let them, you know, get great people around you, uh, lead them, motivate them, coach them. I always considered myself to be more of a coach than anything. And but let them go, give them runway, and, and maybe you have to put some rails. And, and sometimes maybe you got to pull them back a little bit or get them back on track. But hire hire great people and let them go. And so you know, when when I look back at you know, quote unquote low points. I didn't have any dramatic low points in in my career. I mean, you have bumps in the road. You have difficult times. We talked about the one around the financial crisis. I mean, that was a really tough time, but somehow I, I personally, whatever my personality is, I tended to thrive during those periods. I always loved a good challenge. I mean, when you think about the custody business that we we were going up some uh, up against the you know some big, well-established players for many years, and so we were a bit of an underdog uh, for many years. And now I think you know I, I don't think you can call us an underdog. You know, my old firm an underdog anymore. You're not, but not. Not as much now, but there was definitely for a bunch of years there. It was kind of that 
it reminded me of the Avis versus Hertz dynamic for a long time. You know, Avis was the big number one in rental cards. Yeah, a- Avis was number two. And so they just decided to own it and like years ago and went with the slogan that just said, we're number two, we try harder. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And they just That's right, it. and I think advisors kind of viewed us as, as that as that player, and, and it was you know it was probably accurate, but I I uh, really thrived in a role like that. I thrived when when things got tough. I mean, frankly, when things are going really well, it's boring. It's really boring. You know, you, you know, things need to be happening. So you always try to make you know you you want positive things to happen, but you always. Uh, you know, try to continue to push yourself. And, you know, what was always critical to me is, you know, again, I think, and this goes to a lot of entrepreneurs, personalities, and, you know, which you see all across the independent RIA space. And, and I must've had a bit of this in my personalities. I was, I was never satisfied, fully satisfied. One of the things uh, that I, that I struggle with as a leader that I always had to remind myself to do was to celebrate successes because my tendency was always, once you get to the top of the mountain, okay, where's the next highest one? Yeah, that was great. Okay. Where's the next mountain that we're going to climb? And what you have to do as a leader is you have to pause for a minute and celebrate that success and then go on to the next mountain. So, uh, you know, we just, I had people that really love to push themselves and love to not just work hard. Yes, work hard, but also to work smart. And that worked out and, and we're passionate. You know, you have to have a passion. And I always had that for our industry, especially that niche that we were in, that we were in. And uh, whether it was just, you know, discount brokerage and then which became for a big part of my career, the independent RIA space, I always had a passion for it. And that's critical, I think, too. To success. So I was very fortunate uh, throughout my career. You always have ups and you always have downs. You have good days and you have bad days. But whenever you're having a crappy day, you, you go home and you know that the next day is going to be better. And it always is. And that's kind of how my, my career went. So what are you what are you working on now? What what comes next? For oh, you? there's so many exciting things going on in the space. I mean, you can see how hot the uh, the space is just in terms of uh, people that want to make investments in RIAs. You saw, you know, Goldman made a major acquisition. There are other players that are rumored to be out there uh, for sale. Uh, but the private equity space is all over the RIA industry, and and it's uh, it's interesting. It's a little it's a little it's a little scary because you wonder if it hasn't gotten a little too frothy. And I think in, in many cases it has. I mean, the businesses are doing great, but the market is 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 high. And, you know, it takes it just takes, uh, you know, one pullback and then fees, are, of course, tied to the market. And then maybe valuations come back a little bit. So I think some of the players are nervous yet. The investors are really interested in this space. They've gained an appreciation for it, and, and as they should, because it's you know these businesses are, are generally great businesses. If you have a market pullback, well, yeah, you know you might have a pullback in your revenues, but it's not going to be the end of the world. And we all know that the market zigs and zags over many years, but the long-term trend line is headed in the right direction, and that's up. And so I think while you do worry that it's getting a little too frothy, I think the excitement around this business is uh, is warranted, and um, and I think it's a, a probably a long time a long time coming. So I'm doing a work with uh, some private equity firms that have asked for my help 
in some areas. In terms of just consulting with them and helping them try and understand the space. Consulting, helping them understand the space, but also I've worked with a couple that have looked at some specific deals as well and to help them understand the deal. So when they, when the private equity firms are sitting across the table from an advisory team and they're listening to their pitch, they, they, you know, they really have, and they don't know how to assess is this real. They look over to me or, you know, they huddle with me afterwards and say, okay, Tom, here's my list of questions for you. You know, and, and I can, you know, I can basically, you know, give them the nod that, yeah, what that guy said is right. Or, well, I would take a look at it a little bit differently. And so they, you know, they know I know the space really well. And so they tap into me for my expertise there. I also joined two boards. So I looked at, I thought I would join more boards after I left uh, TDA, but I quickly decided that, uh, you know, I probably, I don't want to get it over my head on boards and, and meetings overlap and all that. So I joined two. I've got a couple other on deck possibilities over the coming months. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, I was extremely picky about where I joined too. So the one I mentioned earlier, which maxed my interest, I thought I met with their team and I thought uh, they had an interesting angle as a, as a fintech. And I thought that it was something that, geez, this could really benefit RIAs and they really get the fiduciary model. And so I, so I, I teamed up with them. And then. And so they're the ones that help you to manage and move dollars around across outside cash accounts. So clients get the, the you know, maximal yield. They, they shop, basically, they, I guess they shop banks for you to try to find the bank with the best online right, yield. Like their highest yielding bank right now, even after the 25 basis point cut, I think is like is 230 some, 230 some odd basis points, 236 or something like that. And so they'll have a list of banks that that are high yielding. And what their system does is it will connect to your checking account and it will draw excess funds off your checking account and you determine what excess funds are. And then it will distribute those amongst high yielding savings accounts. And so, so you don't have to sit around and shop for your, you know, which bank is offering the highest yield. They'll they'll just figure it out and tell you, or figure it out and move it for you. Exactly, and they'll and they'll if I mean they can breach the FDIC if you want, but you know most people there's no need to do that. And so they'll fill up the bucket up to the FDIC insurance, and then and then if you have excess over that, they'll fill they'll start filling up the next highest yielding bucket. And then what they also do is for the banks that are on their platform, if somebody lowers their rate or another bank comes on that has a higher rate, they will drain the lower uh, yielding account and, and fill it uh, fill the bucket up, the higher yielding bucket up. So it's really, it's a, it, it's a really cool system. And I think, and in, in, in their pitch, they're also trying to work with, you know, going back to the custodians with, with a lot of the, the different custodians and they've tapped into some. And I think initially, you know, the custodians who may be concerned, they were trying to skim off their cash on their platform. Well, I was going to say that's that's kind of the gravy train for for the custodial right. model. But as we know, you know, when you're looking at account by account basis, that's not where most of the cash is held for these wealthy individuals. It's already held off. So the, the, the a lot of smart advisors out there, and that's the bulk of their business is coming from the RIA space. A lot of smart advisors out there are using this as a pitch to go to their clients and say, hey, listen, I'm working with a new company. This is what they do. Let me tell you a little bit about what they do. Do you have any excess cash that we haven't talked about that's sitting in savings accounts or a, you know, a low-yielding uh, checking account or a CD or something? And they're discovering that there's a lot of cash out there that they didn't even know about. 
And so they're helping to pull that cash in and get that under their umbrella. So I think uh, I, I think it's a really interesting company and really smart people that uh, that are there that are running that. And so so we'll see what happens with that. The other, the other company I joined is uh, essentially is uh, a company that provides turnkey for own. 401k solutions to advisors so that advisors can bring a 401k and manage a 401k plan within their infrastructure. So a lot of advisors have have individuals that have their own businesses and they have 401ks, but the 401k can be more of a hassle to manage than an individual brokerage account. Well, they this company called PCS Retirement out of Philadelphia they have a turnkey system essentially that allows advisors to manage in an efficient and effective way 401ks and to expand their businesses through that uh, or practices through that through that particular uh, channel and and that's uh, that's a really inter- and that's that company is is based off you know fiduciary principles fully disclosed uh, fees and they're really a, a phenomenal firm actually they just made an acquisition so they're doing really well. They have uh, private equity that's uh, attached to them that has made an investment in them as well. So they're very well capitalized, and it's uh, it's really a yeah, it's a it's really a phenomenal uh, uh, business. So for folks that are listening, this is episode one one hundred and forty four. So if you go to kitsis.com slash one four four, we'll have links in the show notes section if you want to check out any of these further. So. So Tom, as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to, to different people. And so you've had this incredibly successful career already, you know, drove tremendous growth in the RA business at, at TD in particular, and, and then on in the retail side, and you know, now into all sorts of cool new companies. So you've certainly had the you call the uh, objectively successful career, but I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, one of the ways that I always define success for myself was how did my how did my teammates do? How did my players do? How did the people that were on my team do? And I always got an incredible kick out of watching the people that are on my team uh, grow, and so. When you look, for example, at the senior operating committee for my old shop, there are, uh, you know, and you look at the the custody business today at my old shop, it's run by a guy that uh, was on my team for many years, a guy that I hired uh, in the in the early '90s, and so I really get. And you look at his team, and it's people that have been with us uh, for a long time and kind of grew up in the business and have all gone from being, you know, kids like me. I was a kid, and uh, all of a sudden. These uh, unmarried kids are married and they have families and they have incredibly successful careers and they've done and made a tremendous impact on financial services and on the lives of so many investors by being a part of this this you know incredible uh, new model called the independent independent registered investment advisor model and to be a part of that I mean that gives me incredible satisfaction so when I think about future success. You know, I think as long as this as this thing continues to grow and and do well and make a difference in people's lives, you know, I look back on that and I say, wow. I mean, I w- I had something to do. I was a part of that. I was a part of the large team, which was the custodians and the independent advisors and and all the other players involved in the in the business. I was a part of that, and that really, really is is incredibly 
gratifying. And, uh, and I look forward and I say, well, geez, now what else can I do to help uh, in this particular industry? Because it does so many great things for individual investors and helps them achieve their, their you know, financial goals and dreams, which are directly tied usually to your life's goals and dreams. What else can I do to help facilitate that? So what you'll see for me uh, going forward, Michael, is a, a, a continued look at what are some of the challenges and, and problems that advisors are faced with every day, and what can I do, if anything, to get involved in helping to solve some of those problems. Like one of them today is that the advisors are aging. We've been talking about this forever, but you know what? They really are getting older. We all are. And for the first time, I'm hearing from some advisors like, you know what? I'm actually starting to get tired. (laughs) And I talked to some of the advisors that have sold their businesses and I said, so what are you going to do now? I said, I'm not going to do anything. I said, you don't want to get back in it? When is your non-compete end? No, 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 Tom. I'm done. <laughs> so for the first time, I'm starting to hear that. And and that's an issue for the advisory industry. And I think the answer shouldn't just be you know, to to sell to the person that comes along with the biggest check. And, 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 I don't, and that's not the way advisors think either. Advisors care deeply about their clients. They're friends with many of their of their clients. And so we need to, as an industry, figure out, all right, we've got all these independent firms out there. What are we going to do to help facilitate the transition to the next generation? And that may mean different things to different firms. You know, in some cases, it may mean selling it to another advisor that they trust will take care, great care of their clients. In some cases, it may mean to selling it to internal people. It depends. But so what I'm looking at now is how can I get further involved in that and helping to facilitate that to transfer all these uh, wonderful clients to the next generation of advisors. Oh, very cool. Well, I will look forward to seeing whatever the news headline ends out being of wherever you go next to figure out how to do that. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. I enjoy this uh, conversation and all the best to you. Likewise, thank you, Tom, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.